after the revolution had ended, many people went back to Mexico so Trump would be happy. And uh, just kidding. Welcome to Elixir of the God, another BCB episode. We are here with Guillermo from Tequila Fortaleza. That's what Tequila I learned. Fortaleza, yes. And excuse me, I'm, I'm the German ignorant guy here. So, uh, Guillermo, maybe you introduce yourself really quick so that uh, our listeners can uh, picture who you are and what you're doing. And we have already four beautiful bottles here standing next to us. So we want to learn about you and your product and your history a little bit. Thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful to be here in Berlin. I like to say this is the best bar show in the world. BCB. So BCB 2019 is awesome. My name is Guillermo Erickson Sousa. So I'm a fifth generation tequila maker. My great great grandfather got to the town of tequila in Mexico in the 1850s and he started making tequila. Unfortunately, my grandfather sold that brand in the 1970s. And uh, we were left without a distillery. But we kept the smallest distillery. And we repaired it in the year 2000. And 2005, we brought out Fortaleza, which means fortitude. Fortitude. It has something to do with strength? Yes, strength. It can also mean the fort, like the fort up on the hill. Yeah, true. You know? Yeah, yeah. You had to go through some rough times, and but you prevailed. You persisted, and uh, in a way, and now now you have a strong brand again. Is that, that uh... well? Very small. We we used to own the Sousa brand, and the Sousa brand is a very big brand. When my grandfather sold it, it was the largest tequila maker in the world, and uh, subsequently, but we had kept this property with this tiny old distillery and when we were kids we used to play in it because it was a non-operating distillery then uh, in the year 2005 we were able to bring our product to market and today we're in 26 countries and uh, the product is made the old way we use what's called a crushing stone or a taona stone and we make it like it was made 150 years ago and you can taste the difference Yeah, yeah, you can you can taste it. I, I I really like tequila, and Fortaleza is one of my favorite brands. I'm I'm not saying this because you're here, but this, it's for real. It's one of the brands I have in my house. I know there is a very interesting history behind this brand, behind yourself too. I think you, you try to picture that history through the bottles, or am I mistaking? Because every bottle is labeled differently, in a kind of a pueblo uh, rustic label. And I wanted to ask you if, if, if that has any meaning. Thank you, yes. So what we try to do is we have this beautiful property. It's about 30 hectares okay. uh, right in the town of Tequila it, uh, where the distillery is located and where I live. So I live on the same property. And it's absolutely a beautiful property. I grew up there as a kid. Uh, where our family had many, many, many reunions there. So I have all these beautiful memories. But after my grandfather sold uh, Tequila Sousa, we felt like many of these things had gone away. And the property kind of felt uh, lonely. So when we put the brand back, we said we wanted to put Fortaleza with on the label with some of these locations that are on the property because it's truly, a, truly a gem of a property. And... On our first label here on the Blanco bottle, 
That's what the distillery looks like. So if you came to the distillery, it absolutely looks just like that. Okay. So we have a we took a photo of the four bottles. So when you're listening to this podcast, you can see the picture. We attach the picture to it. Far so left. On the far left. Far left. Exactly. You, you have the palenque or the house, the house, uh, the casa. It's uh, the the fort. <laughs> fort. The distillery. Yeah. The it distillery. This is the distillery. And then this is the next bottle is what we call steel strength. So that comes out at 46%. So just as it came out of the still, that's how we bottle it. Many uh, cocktail bars asked me for the steel strength. We brought that out about two years ago. The Blanco on the left, the extreme left, the Blanco is 40%, just for your listeners to know. On this steel strength, we have the dogs. My dogs are on there. And uh, the two pot stills, because we use small copper pot stills. One copper pot is 450 liters, and the other copper pot, the smaller one, is 200 liters. And on the next version, that's the Reposado. The only difference is it's Blanco tequila put in barrels for six months. Uh, the aging period six months. And in, in that vignette, we call that Reposado arrested, and in that vignette, Uh, we put the inside of the distillery with the depiction of the crushing stone, which we call a taona. And we, that's how we macerate the cooked agave. And we do 100% through the crushing stone. Now, that limits our volume much. Most people have replaced, well, 100 years ago, everybody had crushing stones. But now everybody's using roller mills. But we decided the old methodology, while it's much, much slower... Uh, gives a different taste, gives a taste that is long gone. How many tequilas use a Tajona uh, still? I yes. think there's about five people out there that uh, are using Tajona stones. To my knowledge, we're the only one that does so exclusively. We don't make any, we don't have a roller mill on our property. Okay, okay. The last one is the Añejo, and that's a view of the property. And the Añejo is 18 months in the wood barrel. We use uh, used whiskey barrels that we chip out and reburn. And the view they see on there is the house, but it kind of looks like a fort up on the hill. Yeah, it yeah. does, it does, it does. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you said 30 hectares? Yes. Do you, do you know how many plants fit? I'm guessing you do, but not exactly, but well, more I, or less. We probably have about 50. 50,000 plants, I think, on our property. Okay, and do you do, do you cycle them out? Because with all these fluctuations in the in the agave industry, so that you can always have, I don't know, another question I could ask would be, do you always use your own plants, or sometimes you have to go out and buy from third parties? Yes, there's a lot of fluctuation. I'll answer that in three parts. Okay. One, the agave takes uh, seven to eight years to mature. Uh, so we plant, and we plant about uh, 3,000, 3,500 to a hectare, maybe 4,000 plants to a hectare. But then it'll take seven to eight years to mature. And during that time, you have to weed them. You have to watch for bug infestations and diseases, and you have to treat that. Other than that, you don't have to water them. The natural rain that we get uh, takes care of that. Uh, it's a very uh, good plant in terms that it'll withstand uh, droughts. Yeah, feisty. Uh, yeah, it's 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 not in the cactus family, but it but it breathes like the cactus. It breathes at night, so it conserves water. 
But yes, seven to eight years. And so right now we have a shortage of agave. The price is extremely high. And there's no very little, very mature agave right now. And yes, we're planting as much agave as we can. Uh, everybody is. And so we probably see an oversupply in seven to eight years. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. <laughs> But right now we're looking at shortage condition and we do buy from small farmers. So we don't have enough agave for our operations. I wish we did. But uh, right now I'm looking at buying more land so we can plant next year. We're trying to buy at least 20 hectares a year. Okay, adding 20 hectares. Yes, adding 20 hectares a year. We hope to do that for the next 10 years. That's one of our goals. Okay, 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 okay. It's just very difficult to find land right now. I can imagine. Because the agave is high priced. Seven to eight years when the agave will be low priced again yeah, because yeah, maybe it they goes sell. through the cycle. There'll be a lot of people selling. Exactly. I can imagine. I can imagine that. And probably the land prices follow along as well. I can imagine. Absolutely. They yeah. do. They do. Land becomes, when there's an oversupply of any crop, the land price becomes cheaper because many people want to get out of the business of farming. Yeah. It's not the best. It's not the funnest business in farming. I like to be in the dirt and the mud. I have a pickup truck, big American pickup trucks, <laughs> and four-wheel drives. So I like to be out in the mud. I enjoy it. But a lot of people don't, don't really like it. And it is a commodity. So it's not like you're going to get, you can, you can hit it big. But then you can hit it bad, too. Yeah, yeah, of course. So it's a commodity, and, and so it's a tough business. It's not an easy business. You sound like you spent some time in the United States from your accent or from you. You sound to me more like an American land than a Mexican. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually half Mexican, one quarter Swedish. My grandmother came from Sweden when she was 10 years old to the United States. And my father was a second-generation Norwegian. Both of his parents were Norwegian. Well, his mom was Swedish, but on his father's side, both of his grandparents were Norwegian. And uh, they had immigrated from Norway. But what happened was during the revolution in Mexico, the second revolution in 1910, my grandmother on my mother's side had to leave. And because her father was in the military, okay. he sent the whole family to Chicago in 1910. And there was eight children. And so they went to Chicago to go to school. In 1925, my grandmother goes back to Mexico. She had met my grandfather, actually, in the United States. And as many people, after the revolution had ended, many people went back to, to Mexico so Trump would be happy. And uh, <laughs> just kidding. Because Mexicans really want to be back in Mexico. Yeah, yeah, it's true. We, we love it's being true. in Mexico. There's such a cultural shock we are much more comfortable in mexico we love mexico but you know we just don't have the jobs in mexico that's a problem if we had better jobs in mexico we have more investment better jobs then uh, there would be less people then there would be less people trying to yeah, cross the border exactly. it's a very simple thing because i don't know really any mexicans that want to be in the states it's very cold Anyway, back to the story of my grandmother. Sorry about the political interruption. Oh, we, are, we, uh, we don't mind that. <laughs> we agree with you, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Yeah. But so my grandmother came back to Mexico. She got married to my grandfather. And my mother was born in Mexico City. Her brother was born in Guadalajara. And my grandfather took over Tequila South in 1946. Well, 
my grandmother's sisters, two of them stayed in the United States and they married Americans. Well, one married American, one married a Mexican that was also up in there. And they had children. Well, those children happened to live in the same apartment building as my father did. And they were good friends. One of them's still alive. His name's Tito Salcedo. My father, unfortunately, passed. And they were very good friends. And so when my mom, they were in a band together. They went into the military together. We're talking 1944. They both inscribed in the military, my father and his friend Tito, who's, who's my uncle. And so my mom goes up and she stays with her cousins and she meets my father. And then the second time she goes up, like 1953, she gets married to my father. My grandfather was very, very angry because my mother married a gringo, you know. <laughs> and we call a, a gringo is American born in the United States yeah, is a gringo. Yeah. It's not, it's not a really nice, not a really bad term, but it's not the nicest term. No, it's not. It's not. So my grandfather was hopping mad about it. And we were born in the States, so I did most of my school in the States. But mo- all the summers we spent in Mexico. And, and, and so my heart, my heart is in Mexico. And so I live there full time now. About eight years now, nine years full-time in Mexico. But since I was a kid, it was every summer there. Then after I went to college, then I would go down once a month. I think I'm a 20-million-mile member of Ido Mexico Airline. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt it. Going back and forth? Yeah, going back yeah, yeah. and forth through Tijuana. But it's, uh, it's been quite a trip, and getting the distillery up and running was amazing experience. It took us five years to put it up and get it running, but we didn't have all the money in the world. So you have we, to do it frugally. You have to do it gradually. Yeah. Yeah. We did it gradually, and now, and now we have 85 employees, and we run, we run uh, seven days a week, and uh, 85 employees. So Trump is very happy. I think I'm going to get an <laughs> award from Trump. For creating jobs for in creating Mexico. jobs in Mexico. Yeah, maybe he doesn't like you that much, <laughs> but he, maybe he does drink the oh, tequila. <laughs> he, li- he likes me because I'm creating jobs in Mexico. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what's your annual output, or is that not important, or for you, or you want to talk about it, or it's oh, not a problem. We're very small. Uh, we started very small. We um, we're very careful. Uh, we're in 26 countries now, but we did 20,000 uh, nine-liter cases last year. Uh, which is very tiny, but it's big enough to be wanted. And everybody's been coming up to me, all the big companies come and visit us. And they all say, well, we want to buy you out. And I say, well, that's very nice. And then they give me an offer that I didn't ask for. And then I say, well, thank you very much, but we're not for sale. That's wonderful. I've worked for a small company myself, and uh, it's in private hand. There's no investors. There's no, no people who try to tell us how to make our business and I really enjoy being in that kind of a, uh, of a work situation with that independence and uh, it's different. It's a different way of working. Certainly the best if you can. Now many people can't because cash flow reasons. They don't have enough money. Uh, we were fortunate. Uh, we have no investors either. We've done this all family owned and uh, in fact all of the brands that participate with us in Cantina Mexico Here at BCB, we uh, are all family-owned brands. So we kind of, family-owned brands have to stick together like small people because 
it's it's tough out there competing with some of the big brands. We can't certainly do the marketing that they do, and we can't do the uh, investments they do. But we, we have a different clientele. We have clientele that cares that it's a family-owned brand. I, 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 I wanted to point out that you are not the first nor the second person who mentions the importance of family-owned brands, especially in this industry. Because even if you wanted to scale a lot of your production, if you want to keep this quality, you can't. So it's funny that you mentioned the, the family-owned because basically that's a good standard of quality. If you ask somebody, if you ask, is this brand a family-owned brand? Basically, that can give you... A, it, it's not the only standard, no. You have to see other things. But that's an excellent beginning to see if the brand is doing something interesting and with love and with care and respect or not. Well, we make a product that's 100% agave. We don't make the mixto type of tequila that's 51% agave and 49% other sugars. We have no additives in our tequila. We have no color adjustment, no aroma adjustment, and no flavor adjustments. Many big companies like you even hear of them using glycerin and things like that to make it smoother. Our product's 100% natural. And, you know, that to us is the quality. The fact that we're family-owned is, is a plus, yeah. is a course, plus to course. that. Of course, nowadays, nowadays, the type of client, not only for this, but I would say for, for, for anything that people are consuming, the clients are paying more, more attention to what they're consuming. So uh, knowing that the, the brand cares, also that you say, I care about my people, you know. I know the number of employees, and I'm not for sale, and I care about them. And I also see, and I wanted to ask you this before, because you also have a very interesting project. I see a lot of internationals working for you and living in Mexico, and they're happy because Stefano, I have partied with Stefano, and, and he's a lot of fun. And, uh, but I, I see that you, you also have internationals living in Mexico, making a living. And can you tell us more about this in, in Fortaleza? Sure. We have some international brand ambassadors. Uh, we have Stefano. Yeah. Uh, Kobe. Uh, Kobe's from Belgium. Stefano's yeah, yeah. I from this Italy. Year. He's from Milan. And then we have Chris Maxwell, who's uh, out of uh, San Diego, California. And we have uh, Mitch Wolf out of San Diego, California. Kobe there. Great ambassadors. You know, we just look for one quality. It's uh, tequila passion. If they're passionate about family brands, they're passionate about traditional production methodologies, then they're qualified to be an ambassador for us. And we, we found all these guys by accident, but I found them because of their passion for tequila. Somebody said in another episode of this podcast, mezcal, and I would include tequila in here, you don't find it, it finds you. Is it true for, for you, the people you are finding as well? Well, that's an it, yeah. Yeah, I guess you could say that is, we find that when people taste our tequila, they always say, Well, first they say, I had a bad experience in high school, so I don't drink <laughs> That's tequila. That's super common. Everybody had that one. <laughs> so they Very first common. say that. And they usually were having like a, a cheap tequila, mixed tequila that's not even 100% agave. And then maybe they, you know, party too much then. But I think people now, when they taste our tequila, they go, oh, my God, I didn't know tequila could taste like that. We hear that time and time again. And then they take some time and they do some sipping and some tasting and they decide which one they like. They might like the Blanco, they might like the Still Strength, they might like the Reposado, or they might like the Añejo. 
But one thing common, they say, we never tasted tequila like this. This is what we hear from many, many people. I, I wanted to ask you something because I see you're not a, a Blanco drinker. And, and, and I know you, you're a passionate man about, about tequila. So I, I would like, because this is a common confusion, that tequila should be drunk white. And it, it's ne ne not necessarily. I know a lot of people who like my father is a tequila drinker. And, 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 and he goes much more for for a reposado, not for Añejo, but for reposado himself. But I wanted to ask you, maybe uh, give us a bit of, of, of your, your views on this confusion that tequila should always be drunk, not only tequila, but mezcal in general, every agave distill should be drunk white, and and why is your choice more into the, the reposado or Añejo? I don't know which one you drink, I just know it, it's not... Blanco. <laughs> it's not Chardonnay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I love the Añejo, that's what I mostly drink. But I will drink the Blanco and the Steel Strength. I do like the Steel Strength in a shot. Not, I'm not a frequent drinker of it. I mean, I like the Blanco in a cocktail. I like to use a, I like to use Jamaica Highball or a hibiscus flower tea in a highball style with maybe a splash of soda water and a lime. I don't use any sugar. I'm trying I'm not, that this weekend. I'm not much of a sugar guy. <laughs> okay. A little cold out for iced tea. but so Awesome. But uh, I like it iced tea, especially in the summer. And then I also like a Bloody Maria made with our tequila. I think it melds very nicely in with it uh, in a Bloody Maria cocktail mix yeah. that you make yourself with the tomato juice and uh, the other ingredients that you need to add. But uh, it makes a, it melds very nicely with that. So those are two cocktails I drink. Plus, I try my friend's cocktails. But I'm usually drinking on Yeko because that's what I... That's what a, you like. It's a yeah. flavor I like. Yeah, yeah. I do suggest you always try the Blanco because each distillery has like its own fingerprint, and that fingerprint is their Blanco tequila. Mm. And, and then, if you like the Blanco, you should move on and try. Should like the Reposado and the Añejo. Mm. Uh, the the Reposado and Añejo. The only thing that's happening now is aging, because the tequila is absorbing the characteristics of the burned wood. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. For for some spirits, it's necessary, like for whiskey. But in tequila, it's not necessary, but still, a lot of people like tequila that has gone through wood. I would like to go back to the beginning again. What made you do this? What made you say, okay, I'm going to do tequila again, and I'm going to do it my way? You said, yeah, it was in the family, but it has been in the family, and at some point you decided, what was, what was the trigger? What was the motivation? Well, I... Grew up as a kid. My grandfather had a, it was a big company, Tequila Sausa, and I grew up thinking one day I was going to run it. I used to sit at his desk. I worked in the distillery when I was 14. And I thought I would run that company. And then when he sold, I was 20 years old. I was in college. I think he felt that there was no solution for the next generation at the time. I was more interested in, I had holes in my blue jeans. I had afro <laughs> and... I was more interested in girls and drinking and partying. Yeah, yeah, of course. So he didn't see me as a maybe as a somebody that was serious enough to yeah. to run the company. So he sold, but I always knew I was going to make tequila. Uh, there was a period of time uh, as a family we didn't have the the money to put the distillery back, and I was finally able to put enough uh, resources together to start repairing the distillery in the year 2000. As I say, it took us five years to get it up and running. 
And I could have done that all in in six months today because now I know what I'm doing. But then I didn't know what I was doing, and I and I didn't have enough money. So we were very careful not to make. Sometimes you make a fatal mistake when you're building yes. a business. Yes. So I was very careful about that. And then when we got it up and running, we did plan to make a roller mill tequila, much faster crushing, and a tauna. But we got the tauna done. We made our first test batch, and we tasted this tequila, and we said change the business plan let's just make tauna crushed and so we don't have a roller mill and uh, we're brick oven cooked uh, we use uh, wood fermentation vats and uh, small copper pot stills and when people walk into my distillery maybe one of your listeners comes in one day and you know what they're going to say to me they're going to say we thought you were bsing <laughs> you can say it. Yeah, yeah. We, we are. But awesome, awesome. It's, it's awesome. Also, also, I have heard about this project. I think I was speaking to Stefano, and then Fiona was there a couple of weeks ago. And also, there is a project for 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 Fortaleza that maybe this we can wrap it up with yeah, this. But yeah. uh, you receive people in the factory. That's very cool because I must say, many producers will not receive you. That doesn't mean that they're doing anything wrong. But many producers will not receive you. But I like the open, uh, the, the crystal clear situation on saying we do it this way and you can come and check on us if yeah. you want to. So Transparency. But I know that's not, I know that's not the point, like come and check on us. But I find it really interesting that you do receive people and share the education and share this uh, information around the effort put behind every single drop. Because once you see it in the bottle... It looks easy, you know, and you can drink it and chug it and stuff. But like I was saying before, like lift a piña yourself. or There is a lot of effort put in in every drop of, of a real, real good tequila or any, any agave distill. What, what about this, this idea of inviting? Well, we're in the town of tequila, about an hour outside Guadalajara, which is a major, second biggest major city in Mexico. Uh, many direct flights to reach Guadalajara. For people here in Germany, they probably have to go through Mexico City. Most likely. Mexico City to Guadalajara. But we have our museum, which was the house of my great-great-grandfather. That's open uh, six days a week, Tuesday through Sunday. You need no reservations. That's open from about 10 in the morning to 6 at night. And then our distillery is open by reservation. Just have to email us on our website. And then we do have like a work program for bartenders. So they're able to come and work. They stay with us for a week, and they do all the jobs in the distillery. And they work one day in uh, our friend's Arete Distillery, and they work one day in Don Fulano Distillery. Okay, okay. But that's only for bartenders that are carrying our products, and that's a week-long uh, program. Training program. But, but for the regular aficionados, they're welcome to come anytime. They just need to come with a reservation. Easy to get to reservation. Our website is uh, Tequila. Fortaleza.com uh, or dot .mx2, but Fortaleza is spelled F-O-R-T-A-L-E-Z-A. Uh, Fortaleza, and it means fortitude, but you have to put tequila on the front of that. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to get city in Brazil. Ah, okay, 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 important. Okay, tequilafortaleza.com or dot .mx. Okay, very good. Sorry, I didn't want to be rude. I just pulled out my phone because uh, somebody on uh, Facebook uh, contacted me about a workshop and she wanted to talk to us about in the podcast and I think we're going to have her on 
And I just realized it was Fortaleza, it was Kate, and uh, she said uh, what a mind-blowing experience it was for her. And I, I, just, I just connected the dots, so I'm sometimes a bit slow in my brain, but I just connected the dots, and uh, now, now everything is a bit clearer to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she wants to share that the experience was amazing. It, it's, as I say, it's our tour for a typical aficionado is about two and a half hours on the distillery. And they can, uh, if they schedule, they can have lunch on the facility uh, by the lake. Uh, but for industry people, we find they're a little bit more, wants to get into detail. And then, of course, we have the tour, the tasting in our caves. We have authentic caves on our property that we actually have bats in. So awesome. Awesome. It's a pretty cool place to visit. I played in as a kid in these caves. I played in the distillery when I was a kid. And we're very fortunate to be Still on this property. My grandfather bought this property in 1950, so we've had it in our family for a long time. It's not the original distillery of my great-great-grandfather. That's just down the street. But we're very fortunate to be walking in the footsteps of our... My son works with me. He's 28. And uh, we're very fortunate to be walking in the footsteps of our grandfathers. Not very many people to get to carry on the traditions no not many and we're very fortunate and we're proud to do this and we'll keep doing it and we'll keep making the tequila the way my tatarabuelo great great grandfather made it very good thank you so much for sharing yes. your stories thank with you for us your time everything. and thank you for your time and your passion and thank you for fortaleza <laughs> thank you yeah, yeah, thank yeah. you thank both you very fortaleza. much for this uh, opportunity to be on your channel alex here of the gods is the name of the podcast and uh Yeah, we're going to put this out as soon as we can after the BCB madness is over. And yeah. Thank you, Don Guillermo. This was amazing. Muchas gracias. Muchas Thank gracias. You. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. ciao.